Okay, one of the questions I think that all of us ask sooner or later if we are serious about following Christ is why? Why does God let me struggle? Why can't I overcome my temper? Just about the time I think I have got a hold of it, I lose it again. How come I can't seem to break this bad habit? I want to quit, but I just don't seem to have the ability to do so. Why do I struggle with my thoughts so much? Why don't I have more self-control? What happened to the victory, the peace, the joy, the mountaintop experience with God when I first came to Christ? If I really am a new person, new creation in Christ, why do I still struggle with my old self? Sometimes, quite frankly, I wonder if I really am a Christian. If God loves me, why do I still struggle so much with my old self? Let me ask you this morning, any of these questions hit home for you? They certainly do for me. And the truth is, all of us have struggles, don't we? We all have setbacks. We all hit speed bumps. We all have struggles. Even the Apostle Paul transparently said in Philippians chapter 3, he said, I am still not all that I should be. Well, if you have your Bibles, open to Romans chapter 7. And we're going to look at a passage this morning that is written for struggling believers. And if you're struggling this morning, if you, if you find yourself doing the very things you don't want to do and not doing the very things you want to do, I want you to know that you are in good company. <laughs> you are not alone by far. Uh, this passage has, in the words of one, helped shed the grave clothes of death for thousands. In other words, if you can embrace with your heart, not just your mind, but with your heart, these 19 verses of what Paul is going to share with us, it will save you a tremendous amount of heartache and confusion in your walk with Christ. Now, before I walk through the text with you, I want to just recap very quickly to put us in the context of Romans chapter 7 of what Paul is saying. Paul has just finished in verses 1 through 6, telling us that as believers, we are now dead to the law. And he uses marriage as an illustration in verses 1 through 6, illustrating a wife who is married to a perfect husband who demands absolute perfection 24-7, 365. And he says in this illustration, the husband is the law. And as a husband, the law is always demanding, always correcting, always right. <laughs> and the wife is, sadly, always wrong. 
She is never good enough, and she hates it. Well, Paul says in this illustration of marriage that the law no longer has jurisdiction over someone when they die. And in verses 1 through 6, he says that you as a believer, that when you crossed the line of faith, you trusted Christ, uh, you died. And therefore, the law no longer has jurisdiction over you. A death has happened, and that death happened the very moment you trusted Christ. Romans chapter 6, verse 3 says that you were buried in Christ's baptism with him in death. The Apostle Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. And therefore, since you have died, the law no longer has jurisdiction over you. So you've died to the law, and now you have a new husband. Another husband, Paul says. And this husband is not demanding or harsh or condemning, exacting, but this husband is a husband of grace, of love, of understanding. A husband in whom you don't serve because of duty, you serve because of love. A husband whom you want to serve, because this husband gives you what you need, grace. So, we have been born in the newness of spirit, and we now are married to a new husband in Christ. And Paul now begins in verse 7. Let's pick it up in verse 7 of chapter 7 of Romans. Let me read through the entirety of the chapter to the end of verse 25. Follow with me is what Paul says in this passage. Listen carefully. If you can, you don't have to tell me when you get done with this passage, but tell me how many times Paul says I in this passage. Verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. From a, for apart from the law, sin is dead. I was, once apart, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which is uh, the result to result in life, proved to be the result of death for me. For, in sin, for sin, taking the opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be, he says. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin, affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. For we have, or for we know, that the law is spiritual. It's from God. But I am of the flesh, sold into the bondage of sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So, now, 
No longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh, my old nature. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want to do, I, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But if I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then, on the one hand, I find, myself, I find in my mind I am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. <laughs> uh, this is an amazing passage because it's incredibly transparent. The Apostle Paul is revealing a transparency about himself, a, a down-to-earthness, if you will, that we do not see perhaps anywhere else in the entirety of Scripture in all of Paul's writings. But Paul is talking about now a believer's relationship to the law. Now he's just said in verses 1 through 6 that as believers we're dead to the law. Yet at the same time he says in verse 12 of this passage that the law is good, it is righteous, it is holy. This is a good place to pause, perhaps, before we really launch into this, to help us understand uh, the relationship between the believer and the law. A lot of believers are confused by that. If the law is righteous and good and holy, and yet I am dead to the law, then what is my relationship to the law now? I think a lot of the confusion is cleared up for us when we begin to understand where Paul says in chapter 6, verse 14, we're no longer under law, but now are under grace. We understand that, but not completely. So what does it mean? What is our relationship then to the law? Well, if the law is righteous and good and holy, then we need to understand something about the law. The law is, in fact, a reflection of God's perfect, holy, and righteous character. In other words, the law reflects who God is. And the Bible says that you and I are made in the very image of God. In other words, being made in the image of God, we were made to reflect the holy and just and righteous and good character of God. But sin destroyed our ability to live out the perfect image of God in which we were made. When we understand that, we then begin to understand that the law is good. It is righteous. And that's why Paul says, I joyfully concur with the law of God in my heart. Because it reflects the very thing, the very standard, the very image that I want to live out. Because I was made for that image. So Paul says the law was like an x-ray machine. And in order for God to show us our sin, it was like coming under an x-ray machine. And what does an x-ray machine do but reveals deep inside what is wrong that nobody else can see? 
And so when the x-ray machine reveals what is bad, what is not good, does that then make the x-ray machine bad? Not at all. And so Paul says the law is like an x-ray machine. It's doing its job. It's good. It's revealing, in fact, what is wrong. But let's not get lost in that. That is not Paul's main point in this passage. Paul's number one point in this passage is he wants to set this record straight. That we're no longer under law, but that's not saying the law is bad. Paul is not saying as an apostle or as a Jew, as a former Pharisee, that the law is bad. In fact, it is good. But what he wants us to understand now is how is it then that when I become a Christian and I'm now under grace, why do I still struggle with sin? This is... I would say one of the most life-transforming passages in Scripture. Not because the truth that it says is only shared here. In fact, the truth that you find in this passage is shared replete throughout the New Testament. But I think what makes this passage so transforming is that, is that the way Paul is sharing it. Paul, the Pharisee, the apostle, the man of God whom God has used perhaps more so than any other Christian who's ever lived, shares transparently something that is going on inside of him that you would never guess or never fully believe, lest he would share it with you. He bears his soul in this passage unlike any other. Now, if you're familiar with this passage, you know that debate surrounds this passage, has for centuries. And it, it has to do with this. The debate is around Paul's inner conflict. Is this inner conflict referring to before Paul became a believer or after he became a believer? Now, if you were reading or listening as I was walking through the passage, you would have noticed that Paul used the word I, first person present singular pronoun, I, some 29 times in this entire passage. I think Paul answers the question for us. Paul is not talking about his past before he became a believer. He's talking about right now, as the great apostle Paul, he is struggling with sin. That there's an inward struggle inside of him. And so what Paul does in these 19 verses is give us a painful autobiography of his own struggle. And so I have entitled this, Paul's Painful Autobiography. <laughs> uh, really, this is a self-portrait, an autobiography in short, six short lines, if you will, that I want to unpack as we look at these verses together. So Paul's going to share with us not just his autobiography, but listen, this is your autobiography too, isn't it? This is a self-portrait of you as well as Paul. So Paul shares this self-portrait, this autobiography, and six short lines. The first one is this, found in verse 7. He says, I am guilty before God. He says in verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Of course not. May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, I've discovered that most people don't need to be told that they are guilty before God. They already know it. And Paul says that 
He knew it because of God's 10th commandment, you shall not covet, found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 21. And the same commandment goes on to say that you shall not crave your neighbor's home or their land or his wife or his servants or his oxen or anything else. You see, this commandment, unlike all the other commandments, has to do with what's going on inside of a man. And it comes down to an attitude of desiring or wanting what I cannot have. And so Paul says this commandment, in effect, was an x-ray machine of God looking into his heart, showing him that what nobody else could see, but God was saying, I see in your heart nonetheless. Now, as a strict Pharisee, he could obey all the other laws uh, with relative ease, at least ways appear to. Do not lie, do not steal, do not cheat, do not murder, do not commit adultery. All these have to do with the outside of what's going on in our lives, where everyone else can see. But it was the 10th commandment, Paul says, that was his downfall in his life. You see, it is the only commandment out of all 10 that deals with the desires of our heart. And Paul said, when I began to realize the 10th commandment said you shall not covet your neighbor's home or his wife or his, or his servants or his uh, anything else, he began to realize that in fact was going on inside of him. He wanted what he could not have. And it was the 10th commandment that Paul realized that God understood and judges the heart, not just our actions. Jesus clearly said this in Mark chapter 6, verse 21. He said, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, uh, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things, he says, proceed from within and defile a man. And so Paul, in effect, said this. As a young Pharisee, as a young man who was a Jew, I didn't know that I had all these desires until God showed me them from his law. And the moment I found out that I could no longer secretly hide my desires in my heart from God, the more I realized I wanted those things. So this commandment, he says, showed him the utter sinfulness of his own sin. And so this is what Paul is talking about. He says, verse 9, he says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came to life, sin came alive and I died. In other words, he believed as a Pharisee, if I keep all the laws, it's going to give me life and freedom. Instead, it gave me death and guilt. It killed me. Why? Because God's word was acting like an x-ray machine. James chapter 1, verse 22 through 25 tells us that the law is like a mirror. It reveals the inner man before God. So Paul says, first of all, he says, I am guilty. Let me ask you, how many of you are guilty? We are all guilty, aren't we? We've all crossed the line. But that's just the beginning of his autobiography and yours. He says, I'm not only guilty before God, but he says, it gets worse. I'm a slave to sin, for we know that the law is spiritual, that is, it's from God, but I am of the flesh, sold into the bondage of sin. See, more than simply being guilty before God, I realize I'm a slave to sin. 
I'm trapped. Now, remember, Paul is not speaking past tense like we often have conversations with one another where we say, you know what, I used to struggle with that sin too. 20 years ago, that was a problem for me as though somehow I've arrived today. (laughs) Paul is not speaking past tense. He is speaking present in the here and now. And he says, I have a problem. Not only do I know I'm guilty before God, but he says, every time I see a sign that says, do not touch, <laughs> there was something inside me that says, I want to touch that. Every time I see a door that says, do not enter, private, I want to open that door and find out what is on the other side of that door. You see, Paul recognizes that there is something at work inside of him. This old nature, the old man, He's still susceptible to the temptations of this world, of this life. And so Paul says our problem is we have two natures. Our old nature that we inherited from Adam. And our old nature loves to push the limits, doesn't it? Loves to cross the line, break the rules. But our new nature, just the opposite, loves God. Our new nature wants to do what is right, what is good. Wants to please God. I don't want to cheat. I don't want to lie. I don't want to steal. But what surprises me as a believer, Paul says, is that I find myself still being tempted to do all the wrong things that I used to do. So he says, I find, in fact, not only tempted, but I am enslaved to those things. You ever notice that right in the middle of the word sin is the letter I? Paul is saying that our problem we have is an I problem. The old self still wants to take over. Our old self can be so consuming that all we can see is the bondage of our past behavior. All we can see are our shortcomings, our failures, our problems, our frustrations. And when I try to live this new spiritual life in Christ, when all I can see, all I'm consumed by is the old and the frustrations of that, I feel frustrated. I feel trapped. I feel like I'm in a losing battle, and I'm a slave to sin. Third, he says, it's so bad that I don't even understand what is going on inside of me. This whole battle has left me feeling completely confused. Verses 15 through 16, he says, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I am not practicing, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. (laughs) I don't always understand what is going on inside of me, Paul says. And he says we have two major problems. One, we can't seem to stop doing what we don't want to do. And two, We can't seem to do what we do want to do. We can't do the right things, and we can't stop doing the wrong things. He says, I do not understand what is going on inside of me. And finally, he says, this lack of understanding, this confusion inside of me has left me feeling completely out of control. Verses 17 and 19 says, so now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me, the old nature. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. 
Remember that phrase, the willing is there, but the doing is not. For the good that I want to do, I do, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. <laughs> I know I'm guilty. I know that I'm enslaved to sin. I do not understand this battle that is going on inside of me. I feel out of control. And all of this, is, has, he says, has left me feeling completely frustrated. Let me ask you this. Just pause a moment in his autobiography. Is this like your autobiography in any way? Do you relate to what Paul is saying here? There is a battle inside of me of temptation, of frustration, of bondage, of guilt, of torment, of struggle, and I do not understand what is going on. On the one hand, I love God, and I want to serve him. I want to do what is right. I don't want to cheat. I don't want to lie. I don't want to steal. I want to please God. But on the other hand, there's this inward conflict still at work inside of me that is confounding to me because I thought I was a new creation. I thought sin was dead in my life, but in fact, I find it very much so alive. And I find myself consumed with the past, with sin, with temptation. And it's left me feeling frustrated. So he says in verses 21 through 23, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law, a different power in the members of my body. Waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. What Paul is describing in Romans chapter 7 is not just an autobiography of where he is at as he's writing this, uh, nor just where we are at as we so well identify with him. What Paul is describing is someone who has not fully realized what it means that you're dead to the law. You see, you're not going to be dead to the law as long as you believe somehow you can attain holiness by your own behavior. As long as you think you can please God, that is, be justified by keeping his commandments, the law is still very much alive in you. And the purpose of the law was not to give you life, but to show you the deadness of sin inside of you, the x-ray machine of what is wrong. So Paul is describing that part of us that finds it so easy to revert back to the flesh, to live by a list of rules to please God. And we all do it, don't we? We do it on a daily basis. We do it moment by moment. There are times I catch myself doing things a certain way, thinking, okay, God, you'll like it if I do it this way, but you won't do it like it if I do it that way. And yet neither one has nothing to do with the other. Why? Because we are prone to want to live by rules. And we think that we measure God's approval by how well we keep the rules or we don't. <laughs> One person said it this way, trying to live by the rules to please God. He said, this is just like the law of gravity. It ties you down. You may flap all you want in your flesh, but you'll never get off the ground in your own effort. Boy, isn't that true? You'll never get there by your own effort. You see, the problem that the person in Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul is having, is a problem of self. 
And you see it in the key words of the passage, not just I, but you see I, me, my, myself. It's all about three people in an inward conflict of me, myself, and I. And you notice in chapter 7, there is not one mention of the Holy Spirit. It is all about me. In other words, Romans chapter 7, Paul is confessing about this struggling, confused, frustrated Christian who's trying to live in his own power. Now, this is pretty amazing for the Apostle Paul because Paul was a former Pharisee. And he was not just any Pharisee. He was the top of the heap when it came to Pharisees. And the Pharisees had, had formed life into a, a list of rules. They took God's Ten Commandments and added more than 600 to them. And so Paul had mastered these 613 commands, if you will, in Scripture. And he believed that by living this life of keeping these commands, he would somehow have God's pleasure, God's acceptance. But what Paul came to understand on that day in the road into Damascus, when Christ met him and he was broken, and he realized that being a Pharisee would never get you to heaven, Keeping the rules would never get you to heaven. What he realized or began to realize at that point in time is that the Christian life, this life of following Jesus is not natural but rather a supernatural life. And our problem is that in our own flesh, we want to control everything. In other words, what I'm looking at right now is a bunch of control freaks. And you're looking at one up here. We want to be in control. Why? Because that is our flesh. That's the old nature. That's the way you're conditioned. That's the way you lived your life, was to be in control of everything in your life. But the, the, the Christian life is not about a natural life, but rather a supernatural life. It's not living a life of independence, because you've been doing that. It's learning to live a life of dependence. Jesus said it this way, apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, I believe much of the Christian life is coming to terms with the deep, deep, life-transforming truth of what Jesus said. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And until you're convinced of that, until you've come to terms with Jesus' words, you're going to seek to be in control. And as long as you seek to be in control, you're going to find yourself slipping right back into the pages of this autobiography of being guilty, of struggling, of being confused, of feeling helpless. And so Paul says all of this has led him to this one place of helplessness. Verse 24 through 25, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I, 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 uh, on the one hand I, myself, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. <laughs> I am so thankful that he did not finish the chapter in verse 23. But he ended it in 24 and 25. 
But when he says, wretched man that I am, this is the place where every one of us have to come to sooner or later, and oftentimes more than once. This word wretched means that you're worn out from complete and utter exhaustion. You're completely empty. There is nothing more to give to give. It means that you fought the battle with such intensity and you're completely drained of all energy. Can I be candid with you? I think that we're all there. That this is the way it is for many Christians in their walk with Christ. They aspire to want to live for God and please Him, yet on the other hand, they find this daily uh, defeat that they face in their own flesh, this daily struggle. And it's come to the place where they're exhausted, where they can't do it anymore. They don't want to do it anymore. And they've been fighting this battle for so long, hoping that every new day would bring a fresh start, that somehow things would turn around, and they don't. It's a repeat of the day before and the day before that and the day before that, and every day is a day of defeat and depression, depression discouragement. And so Paul cries out in utter agony, he says, God, I cannot change. I cannot change my, in my own power. And who will rescue me from this body of death? So Paul is at his wit's end. He's the end of his rope. And he feels like giving up. You ever been there? I certainly have. Paul realizes that his Olympian efforts to please God have left him worn out, depressed, and utterly exhausted. You see, one of the things that I've discovered about God and why he allows us to struggle is this, God has known you better than, knows you better than anyone else knows you. Better than yourself. And God knows you so well that when you think you're at the place where you're at the bottom of the well in your life, God knows whether you've reached that bottom or not. God knows you better than you know yourself. He not only knows us better than we know ourselves, but he knows when you've come to the end of yourself. He knows when you've come to that place, you stop looking within yourself for the answers, you stop looking to the world for the answers, and you finally come to that place, God, they're not there. They've got to be in you because there's nowhere else to look. You see, I don't believe it is an accident that when you read Scripture, you see time and time again that those whom God uses the most have the most come to the end of themselves before God uses them. I think of Abraham. God told Abraham, you're going to have a son when he was a strong, bold, 75-year-old man. <laughs> But God waited until he was 100 years of age, until Abraham had come to the place where he felt like he was completely used up, exhausted. There was nothing more to give. It was only at that point where Abraham realized there was nothing in him, himself to give. God met him and Sarah and gave him Isaac, their son. 
God waited until Joseph was hopelessly forgotten, rotting in the, bottom, in the dungeon of an Egyptian prison before God finally raised him up to be second in command of all of Egypt. Psalm 105 reflects on that time and says, They afflicted Joseph's feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons until the time, listen carefully, until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. God knew when Joseph thought he was at the lowest of the lowest he could go, God said, not quite yet. You see, I know you better than you know yourself, Joseph. God waited until Moses was 80 years of age before he raised him up to deliver the nation of Israel. Now, if you read carefully in Moses' life, he had a plan to deliver the nation of Israel. He wanted to kill one Egyptian at a time. It didn't work. He had to flee for his life. And it wasn't until Moses was done with life, done with his dreams of how God would use him, that God finally stepped in and said, okay, Moses, now is the time. And Moses said, no, you don't understand. I've got Social Security now. I've got retirement. I'm done. And God says, no, no. Now we're ready to begin. So many times you find in Scripture, it's when we are ready to throw in the towel to give up that God says, okay, now I can finally use you because you've gotten self out of the way. I love these words of Vance Havner who says it so poignantly. God uses broken things. It takes broken soil to produce a crop. Broken clouds give rain. Broken grain give bread. Broken bread gives strength. It is the broken alabaster box that gives forth perfume. It is Peter, weeping bitterly, who returns to greater power than ever. Why does God let us struggle? To come to the end of ourselves. But let me just take a moment and give you what I think are three life-changing lessons of why God allows us to struggle. First of all, simply this. In fact, I heard this echoed already this morning in our time of worship. God allows us to struggle to remind us to keep our eyes on Jesus. The author of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says, Let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. How do we do this? He says we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Another translation says that he is the author and perfecter of our faith. Meaning that he is the one who originates it and he is the one who finishes it. Nowhere in between does self take over. It is about Jesus from start to finish. And so why does God let us struggle? Because he wants us to keep our eyes on Jesus. Well, how do you do that, practically speaking? You've probably heard this a hundred, if not a thousand times. But I'm going to say it nonetheless. How do you keep your eyes on Jesus? Pursue knowing Jesus personally. Spend time in his word. Reflect. 
pray, fast, practice the spiritual disciplines that Jesus practiced because they are for the sake of drawing you closer to him. I love these words of Charles Swindoll who said it so well because many of us struggle when we have our daily quiet time in God's word or we practice the spiritual disciplines and we walk away maybe disappointed thinking we had some expectation that wasn't met. But maybe your expectations need to change. He writes insightfully, spiritual disciplines are not the means to make you holy. They're the means for knowing Christ. As the, as the moon reflects the light of the sun, yet, so, yet has no light of its own, so we begin to shine with God's radiance as we live in proximity to his sun. Isn't that great? I find this struggle is the greatest in our lives when we put ourselves in the middle and we forget to focus on Christ. And we live in a culture, don't we, that is prone to focus on self, self-image, self-improvement, etc. Not too long ago, I read a book by Pastor Mark Buchanan called Your God is Too Safe. Excellent read. And inside this book, Mark Buchanan says this. He says, self-composed wedding vows make me nervous. Usually they end up vague and mawkish, gibranskew or bland and flavorless, inanities posing as profundities, or they are hard-nosed bargains with cutthroat contracts covered with a thin veneer of poetry. <laughs> a couple I was going to marry insisted on writing their own vows. I asked them to let me review them. One phrase in particular stopped me cold. I promise to be true to myself. Um, I said, uh, I'm pr pretty sure you don't want to put that in your vow. No, I'm pretty sure we do, said the man. Well, maybe you're different from me, I said. But there's a part of me, uh, I'm, I'm glad to say, that is joy-filled, generous, trusting, trustworthy. But there's another part of me, maybe the larger part, that's slothful, lustful, Greedy, miserly, apathetic, I could go on. Which part should I be true to, he asked. It occurred to me then that to take the traditional marriage vows is to pledge in essence that I won't be true to myself, that I'll be true to another. I'll be true to God. But in order to do that, I will have to deny myself. Deny my impulse to run, to retaliate, to sulk, to self-indulge, to self-destruct. And one way to describe the trouble we're in is that too many of us for too long have lived by a promise binding as a vow to be true to ourselves. This, he goes on to say, the myth of self-reliance. It is the myth of self-reliance. Being self-reliant, being true to ourselves, is at the root of our fallenness. We fell in Adam and Eve because we trusted in ourselves. And then he concludes saying this, We'll never be saved until we come to the end of ourselves and fall upon the mercy of God. We trust him. We must trust him. We must be true to him. Why does God let us struggle? 
to get our eyes off of self and to focus on Jesus. A second, I think, life-transforming lesson from this is that to show us that we are powerless to change in ourselves. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. In other words, he who stays focused on Jesus bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. In other words, what Jesus is saying is this. Listen carefully. You are powerless to change your old nature, your old self. You cannot muster up enough willpower. You cannot purchase the best books on self-improvement and count on them to work. You cannot change your old nature. You cannot change it by making New Year's resolutions. Paul said, I desire to do what is right, but I can't do it. You see, the law is unable to change you. The law, in fact, shows you you cannot change you. <laughs> You'll never have victory in the Christian life until you realize that you can be a, cannot be a Christian on your own effort, your own power, your own willpower, your own energy, your own flesh. Somewhere along the way, I found these words by Don Shelby, and he says this, we tend to tell ourselves, I can never change, or that will never happen. We presume too much and believe too little. In Jesus Christ, God renders all of our final conclusions premature, and all of our talk of determination is simply bad faith. In Christ, God opens closed doors. He brings resurrection reveals possibilities, reclaims the lost, liberates the cursed and possessed, and changes the unchangeable. Do you hear what he's saying? I cannot change myself, but Christ alone can change me. And Christ alone is the one who my hope is rested upon. So we begin to understand more so what Paul says when he says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 3, a verse that most people know well. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So why has God let us struggle to show us that we are powerless to change ourselves? <laughs> Third is this, is to teach us to be people of grace. Boy, I think this is so true. To teach us to be real with ourselves and real with each other. You see, when you came here this morning, you probably took a shower, put some deodorant on, put your best clothes on, brushed your teeth, combed your hair, and you gave the appearance that I've got it all together, and I'm going to go to church. And when you came into church this morning, you saw a lot of other people that got up this morning, took a shower, put some deodorant on. They brushed their teeth. They combed their hair. And by golly, they look like they've got it all together too. But the reality is we don't, do we? That's why we keep coming back to church because we need to be reminded of the hope that we have in Christ daily, weekly. <laughs> and so I believe that part of the reason that God allows us to struggle is to remind us that we need to be real with ourselves and with each other. So Paul said this, and I began with these words in Philippians 4.13. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, 
forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Paul had guts enough to admit that he had not arrived. And I think that we should as well. So would you look at the person next to you and say, you know, I have not arrived. Would you do that? Now, just to make sure we're thorough in all this, would you look to the person next to you and say this, you have not arrived. <laughs> we have not arrived. We have not. You see, we've learned justification. Romans chapter 1 through 6. Justification means that God declares the believing sinner to be right with him. Therefore, we're now righteous in God's sight. Therefore, we have justification. But our sanctification is working out that righteousness, and that has only just begun. And God is going to work with you all the days of your life. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, there's going to be a struggle inside of you. There's going to be a struggle between the old nature, between flesh and sin and the new nature. And it's going to be there all the days of your life. I don't want to sound depressing because that sounds depressing, doesn't it? That's not the point. The point is we have to be soberingly real. You're going to have struggles. But the Bible also says and shows us that we're more than conquerors in Christ. It does not mean that you're going to be trapped in that sin. It does not mean that you're now a slave to that sin. It does not mean that you're hopeless to that sin. But rather, you need to live cognizantly that you are not immune to sin. The moment you think you're immune to sin, boy, watch out, because you're going to get hit hard. I love the words of John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. Listen to what he said. I am not what I might be. <laughs> I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be. But thank God, I am not what I once was. And I can say with the great apostle, by the grace of God, I am what I am. You see, our natural tendency is to hide our inadequacies, our shortcomings, our failures, our struggles, and you know, it takes a huge amount of energy to try to live a life, making it look like you've got it all together when you really don't. It really does. And if Paul, the greatest Christian who ever lived, did not portray himself this way, then neither should we. It's okay to be honest. It's okay to say, you know, I'm struggling with sin right now. Not 10 years ago, but right now. I'm struggling with my thought life. I'm struggling with impulses to sin that I thought would be gone years ago. But they're still there. It's okay to be honest. In fact, we need to be honest. Because our honesty should drive us to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the one in whom we can do nothing without. I have to tell you, this didn't make a whole lot of sense to me when I first came to Christ. It was in my teenage years, my early 20s, that God 
impressed upon me clearly that he'd called me into ministry. I fought against that. And yet I knew that I wanted to be close to God. He won the battle. I said, okay, God, I'm yours. And there was something that happened in my thinking when I went through that process of being broken down and saying, okay, God, I'm yours. I still had errors in my thinking. You see, as I grew closer to God, I felt like I was walking closer and closer to an intensely bright light that revealed my imperfections, my shortcomings, my inadequacies. It didn't take long before I was struggling in my walk with God. I did not understand why God was making it harder, not easier, to follow Jesus. You see, I had reason in my mind. I had left home. I'd left my family. I'd left friends, left my dreams behind. Everything to say yes to God, what he wanted me to do. I thought, because I'd given up so much, that the Christian life would be a cinch. It was not. And I was wrong. I was still living a self-reliant life. Then one day, when I was in Bible college, a man well into his latter 70s, probably early 80s, a seasoned saint who had done ministry around the world, Major Ian Thomas, came and spoke at our Bible college. I'll never forget his thick British accent, but more than that, I'll never forget what he said. He taught me the meaning of Paul's words, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What I learned from Dr. Thomas that day was that what is required of me is a life of total reliance on the power of God, not my own. He shared words like this. In fact, these are his own words. He said, as a young evangelist, my love and enthusiasm for Christ as my Savior kept me very, very busy until out of sheer frustration, I came to a point of quitting. And that was the turning point from which it was transformed my Christian life. In my despair, I discovered that the Lord Jesus gave himself for me so that, the risen, so that risen from the dead, I, he might give himself to me, he who is the Christian life. Instead of pleading for help, I began to thank him for all that he would wanted, wanted me to be, sharing his life with me every moment of every day. I learned to say, Lord Jesus, I can't. You never said I could, but you can. And always said you would. That is all I need to know. And from that moment, life became an adventure that God always intended it to be. I love his words where he says this. Listen carefully again. In my dis despair, I discovered the Lord Jesus gave himself for me, so that the risen from the dead, he might give himself to me, he who is the Christian life. It was that day as I was sitting in chapel in my early 20s, I began to realize something that has been a life-changing lesson I've continued to learn. It's not about me. It's not about my efforts. It's not about my abilities. 
or accomplishments or even aspirations. Most of my aspirations turn into perspirations. It's all about Jesus. It's surrendering my life completely and fully and utterly to Jesus.